Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 42, Women of War. In the last episode, we concluded our discussion of the Battle of Jutland. Shears' plan to strike a blow against British naval power ended with the German fleet narrowly escaping annihilation. From a tactical perspective, the Germans had fought well. 14 British warships were sunk in exchange for 11 of their own. But in the end, Jutland was a battle they could never win. With its superiority in numbers and firepower, the British squadrons pounded the Germans into retreat. Jellicoe was able to maintain Grand Fleet supremacy, leaving the Germans at the mercy of the maritime blockade. Now that we've covered the twists and turns of Jutland, we can return to the continent and get caught up to events there. I keep having to remind myself that although we spent five episodes on Jutland, we've only missed a couple of days of actual chronology, so how's that for relativity? For this week, there are two things I want to accomplish. The first is to review events as they unfolded at the various fronts, and how the fighting at Verdun upset the Entente's plans for the new year. Then I want to shift gears a bit and talk about what was happening on the British home front. 1916 is a pivotal year in Britain's war effort. Under the direction of David Lloyd George and his Ministry of Munitions, Britain was undergoing a transformative period of national mobilization. Munitions factories were cropping up across the country, and with them came the great influx of women laborers to tend their day-to-day operations. Not only did female labor create a steady flow of supplies to the front, but it also changed the very question of why the war was being fought. Public debates over gender roles, sexual morality, and the preservation of family values became front and center of a wider discussion. Was the war being fought in defense of traditional values, or to create a more open society? Indeed, this remains an important question, which continues to stir up debate wherever you look. The answer is more complicated than you might think. Heading into 1916, the Central Powers and Entente adopted strategies they hoped would hasten the chance of success on the battlefield. In Germany, the senior commander, Erich von Falkenhayn, approached the new year at a strategic crossroad. Germany was entangled in a conflict which offered no hope of decisive victory, and Falkenhayn feared the combined strength of the Entente would one day prove too much for the Central Powers to handle. On a snowy Christmas Eve, Falkenhayn explained the conundrum in plain terms to the Kaiser. Although the campaigns against Russia and Serbia had allotted some breathing room, Germany still faced a Herculean task in overcoming the Entente's vast resources. Our enemies, Falkenhayn wrote, are increasing their resources much more than we are. If that process continues, a moment must come when the balance of numbers itself will deprive Germany of all remaining hope. For a nation which held its army to such heights, Falkenhayn's warning was not received well. The conservative wing, championed by the Hindenburgs and Ludendorffs of the world, were gobsmacked by their boss's admission. Not only did it stink of defeatism, but it was an insult to Germany's army. Ludendorff had never forgiven Falkenhayn for suspending the Polish campaign, and he was particularly invective in his response. He chalked Falkenhayn up as an alarmist, who ignored realities at a ground level. The truth, or as Ludendorff believed, was that the Central Powers were anything but beaten. They could still field upwards of 5 million men. The German army was battle-hardened and experienced, while Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Ottoman Turkey maintained an active defense of the frontiers. Dismissing Falkenhayn's warning, Ludendorff counter-argued that the Entente was nearer to collapse than success. They had squandered large amounts of manpower in setbacks in Poland, France, and at the Dardanelles, and the political bickering between them was beginning to boil over. 1916 was a pivotal year, and Ludendorff urged that Germany should strike before enemy efforts became concentrated. 
but Falkenhayn viewed things from a wider lens than his contemporaries. While Ludendorff remained in favor of decisive victory, Falkenhayn understood a concept few others at the time could grasp, which was that fully mobilized nations, backed by immense industries, make traditional ideas of warfare obsolete. Knocking out armies in Belgium, Russian Poland, and Serbia had not brought any to terms. As long as there remained a will to fight, the fight would continue. 1915 had been a year of mixed success for Falkenhayn. It started when he was forced to play politic with the Habsburgs in the east. This meant weakening the western flank in an attempt to bring Russia to heel. While the campaign was successful in bringing large swaths of territory under German rule, it did nothing to crack the enemy coalition. Tsar Nicholas refused the peace envoys, and Russia remained belligerent. But as the year came to pass, Falkenhayn was finally able to implement the scheme he had wanted all along. For the 1916 campaigns, Falkenhayn turned to history, and borrowed a page from everyone's favorite Prussian, Frederick the Great. Ignoring Frederick's more checkered past, Falkenhayn compared Germany's situation to the one it faced in the Seven Years' War, which saw what was then the Kingdom of Prussia encircled by an enemy coalition. The key to Frederick's success was the Ugly Battle, a series of close-quarter massacres aimed at wearing down the enemy before your own resources were drained. To Falkenhayn, this was the only option available. Exhaust the enemy before they could exhaust you. To do this, Germany would pursue an aggressive defense. Her troops would man the ramparts and dare the enemy to eject them. Unfortunately for Falkenhayn, though, Frederick was no Napoleon, and Falkenhayn was certainly no Frederick. But he had the right idea and judged the situation accordingly. Damaging blows to Russia and Serbia had not weakened the Entente's unity, and Germany still had the Western alliance to contend with. France would not give up as long as German troops occupied her soil, while Britain's stranglehold of maritime commerce continued to starve Germany into submission. While success in the East had produced additional foodstuffs, namely Serbian livestock and Russian wheat, the German population was hacking under worsening conditions. More than 30 cities, Berlin included, had reported food riots, and the death toll was rising. By the end of 1915, some 88,200 civilians had died of sickness and malnutrition brought on by the blockade. The following year, that number would jump again to over 120,000. When it was all said and done, German estimates placed the overall death toll at 760,000 civilians. By comparison, the blockade of Germany in the First World War claimed as many civilians as the Allied bombing campaigns in the Second. So yes, the situation at home was desperate, and getting more so with each passing week. To Falkenhayn, a born product of the Prussian militarist aristocracy, Britain's maritime campaign made him seethe with rage. The deliberate starving of civilians went against every chivalrous code in the book, and he was determined to punish them for their transgressions. Of course, it wasn't like Germany could just go ahead and invade the British Isles. Channel patrols and the ever-menacing Grand Fleet were perched and ready to knock sense into anyone dumb enough to try. But there were two ways this problem could be remedied. The first was resuming the unrestricted U-boat campaign. Falkenhayn may have railed against civilian targeting, yet held no scruples about unleashing submarines against unarmed merchant men. If Britain had already crossed that line, then Germany was prepared to do the same. The navy, however, proved difficult to convince. Remember, this was before Reinhard Scheer took command, so the idea of using the surface fleet as an alternative was laughed out of the room. A resumption of the U-boat campaign was theoretically possible. The fleet had expanded, and its crews were well experienced. But naval command judged the risk factor too high. The diplomatic climate had simply not settled enough to make it worthwhile. American anger post-Lusitania had abated somewhat, but the fear of arousing it a second time was too great. 
Falkenhayn did his best to convince them otherwise, but when the Chancellor Betham Holwig intervened, the issue was squashed. The Navy was not to be brought on board, and the U-boat debate was again suspended. In the meantime, the German Chief of Staff drew up a second option, one which would see Germany attack Britain via her continental allies. In Falkenhayn's assessment, the British regarded their commitment to France as a sideshow. They had yet to pass conscription, and the size of the BEF remained small in comparison to the other armies. Her blind faith in naval power likewise gave them the excuse to keep the land war at arm's length. In other words, Falkenhayn assumed as long as French, Russian, and Italian troops continued being meat shields, the British were happy to sit back and watch the fireworks. He thus wondered what would happen if one of these armies were put out of action. The Austro-German armies had tried containing the Russians in 1915, but the territorial expanse and Tsar Nicholas's stubborn faith made it a slippery fish. The Italians were not a significant target, so we'll let the Austrians handle them. With all possibilities eliminated, that left the French as the prime target. Falkenhayn's plan to beat the English, vis-a-vis -vis defeating the French, was based on a single principle, that concentrating German strength on a specific spot would force the French to commit to a mass killing ground. There are objectives for the retention of which the French general staff would be compelled to throw in every man they have, Falkenhayn told the Kaiser. He went on to argue that once the French had committed themselves, there would be no question of withdrawal. Costly setbacks would drain France of her willpower, leaving her army demoralized and broken. This strategy, Falkenhayn argued, would knock England's best sword from her hand, leaving her exposed and isolated against Germany's legions. As we discussed in episodes 30 and 31, the planning stage for the operation was an incoherent mess. Throughout January 1916, Falkenhayn was also fighting political battles in Berlin. He knew the Hydra of Hindenburg-Ludendorff were itching to replace him, and his political enemies, notably the Chancellor Betham Holwig, were eager to see that change come to fruition. In response to the intrigue, Falkenhayn protected his plans for Operation Judgment under an extra layer of fat. Even those in his command staff were not clear of his intention, and the Austrians were simply left out of the loop. No orders were put to paper, and troop movements took place only under nightfall. Whatever gaps exist in the historical record are academic, because it turns out the Germans had chosen the ideal target. The fortress complex at Verdun was some obscure corner of the Western Front prior to the 1916 offensive. The German 5th Army had been checked at its outskirts during the bloody summer of 1914, but since then the sector had remained quiet, so much so that the French commander-in-chief, Joseph Joffre, had stripped many of the forts of their artillery, keeping just a small garrison to defend the citadel. With these concrete husks all but abandoned, the Germans had seemingly nothing to gain. But at dawn, on the 21st of February 1916, the German offensive at Verdun got underway. For eight hours, 1,400 guns pulverized French positions east of the River Meuse. Over 1 million shells, raining down at intervals of 40 per minute, crashed into an area just 16 square kilometers. After the maelstrom lifted, German troops advanced against the day's defenders. Those alive and still with their senses put up what resistance they could, but rifles and grenades can only do so much. Armed with heavy mortars and portable flamethrowers, the Germans flushed them into the open, where artillery and machine guns took care of the rest. In the face of such carnage, the initial French response was surprisingly reserved. Joffre authorized an evacuation request, assuming the attack was a feint. Just four days later, the imposing Fort Douaumont, the centerpiece of Verdun's defense, was captured without a shot being fired. News traveled up to Paris that Douaumont had been left defended by a single company of reservists, armed with 40-year-old rifles. The capture of Fort Douaumont marks a significant turning point in the Battle of Verdun and by extension, the war as a whole. The attack was real, 
and this hit France like a lightning bolt. In Paris, the newly minted premier, Aristide Briand, went ballistic. Having saved Joffre's hide in a recent confidence vote, Briand was apoplectic. Storming into Joffre's office, he berated the general for his ineptitude, threatening him with a list of yayatas. Joffre could only sit there, stunned into silence. What makes this episode with Briand all the more amusing was that Briand was known for his calm and controlled demeanor. Seeing him blow up like this was an out-of-this-world experience. Joff wasted no time in getting things organized. He sent for General Philippe Pétain, commander of the French 2nd Army, who immediately went to work reorganizing Verdun's defense. All roads now led to the Meuse. From the opposite bank of the river, French guns began to pound the advancing Germans day and night. In addition, Pétain secured a steady flow of manpower and resources. The Voie Sacrée, or Sacred Way, saw 6,000 trucks per day bring 90,000 men weekly to the front, a ferocious appetite which could not be satisfied. After checking a second attack on the west bank of the Meuse, the Battle of Redun settled into ebb and flow. Each day saw thunderous artillery clashes which left the battlefield scorched and burnt. Verdun brought the horrors of attrition to reality. Men were ground up, smashed and traumatized under the incessant crash of shells and gunfire. Daily attacks were fought over woods, farmhouses, forts, and villages. Counterattacks were fought over woods, farmhouses, forts, and villages. Attackers and defenders were decimated at an alarming rate. Fighting took place above ground and in subterranean caverns which were soon choked with dismembered corpses and the stench of decay. Falkenhayn's objective was to crush the French spirit, but it soon became Pétain's goal to make the Germans pay for every inch of ground. Casualties were exchanged at a one-for-one ratio. By the end of March, one German soldier was killed every 45 seconds. In total, the two armies lost a third of a million men in an area half the size of metropolitan Berlin. The fighting in and around Verdun would rage without mercy for the remainder of the year. But as the guns flayed both man and beast, the attack also succeeded in something Falkenhayn had not planned. It jeopardized the Entente's plans for the year. Just as the Germans planned to wear down the French in a contest of attrition, the Entente were deciding on a singular strategy, one that would see them exhaust the central powers in sustained offensives. On the 6th of December 1915, Joseph Joffre called a meeting of the Allied representatives to discuss operational objectives for the new year. At the sleepy commune of Chantilly, 40 kilometers north of Paris where French Army HQ was stationed, military officials from England, Russia, Italy, Serbia, and Belgium listened to Joffre lay out his hopes for the upcoming campaign. The French chief drove home a message of closer cooperation. In the previous year, the Entente had been too divided. Distractions in the Balkans led to the misadventures at the Dardanelles and Salonika. Western Front efforts had been fruitless and costly. Above all, the Chantilly Conference was to get everyone focused on a single objective, the liberation of France and defeat of Germany. To accomplish this task, Joffre wanted to harness the potential of the Entente by launching sustained offensives across all fronts, Russian in the east, Italian in the south, and a joint Anglo-French in the west. These operations, which were to begin simultaneously, would force the central powers to commit reserves in all theaters, stretching their resources to the breaking point. Indeed, this was the very thing Falkenhayn warned about, and it was a natural step for the Entente to take, especially after the strategic flailing of the previous year. While the details would depend on the preparedness of each combatant, the Chantilly meeting set about the Allied strategy of attrition, which would remain unchanged for the remainder of the war. But Joff had been too optimistic. The assumed start date of March 1916 was way too early. The evacuation from Gallipoli would not be complete until January, while Russian and Italian offensives in March 
were ill-planned and met with disaster. Russia lost 80,000 men at Lake Narach, while the 5th Battle of the Isonzo puttered out after a week due to weather. The general Allied offensive would thus have to wait. While Shanti-E was important in the coordination of Allied strategy, the specifics were thrown out the window when the Germans attacked Verdun. Joffre was no longer certain on a time frame. France's priorities had changed, and the question now became how long it would be before her allies came to her aid. The French chief was faced with a pair of issues. His failure to prepare Verdun was a significant blow to his reputation. He understood well that the occupation had turned Paris into a political time bomb. Briand had already quelled the mob once, and there was no guarantee he could do so a second time. The second, and more tantalizing question for Joffre, centered around the English, and what their role in the coming ordeals would be. Firstly, the BEF had a new commander, whose disposition had yet to be tested. One week after Chantilly, the change in command was official. Sir John French, the man who led the BEF to war in 1914, was recalled home. On the 15th of December, Sir Douglas Haig was sworn in as his replacement. Sir Douglas Haig, who will come to know very well as we inch closer to the Somme, took over the BEF at a crucial point in the war. Not only did the new year represent a new approach to operations, but it also signified a major departure from traditional British strategy. Her army was already the largest and most technologically advanced force she had ever fielded, and how this great legion will be put to use remained to be seen. Until 1916, British strategy had been governed by one man and one man only, the Secretary of State for War, Sir Herbert Kitchener. Lord Kitchener was one of the few old-school colonial heroes still kicking about when Europe was again engulfed by war. Prime Minister Herbert Asquith had appointed him head of the war office because the Liberal government was ostensibly light on military expertise. More importantly, Kitchener was nonpartisan, which Asquith hoped would provide a neutral support base. Kitchener was a military man, who not only brought a popular face to the war effort, but a fresh perspective which made him both feared and hated in-house. He was a towering figure in both height and stature, and most interestingly, an arch imperialist. He never trusted Britain's allies, and was uncomfortable with the cordiales between France and Russia. Kitchener made his career protecting Britain's imperial interests. He had been the center of the infamous Fashoda standoff, which nearly brought France and Britain to war in 1898. His appointment to oversee British strategy in the Great War was not welcome news to the French. It hinted that Britain would be a fiercely independent ally, and French leaders were justified in their suspicion. In a way, Kitchener shared the same views as Falkenhayn, that the war could only be settled by one side exhausting the other. But while the German chief had a smaller window in which to operate, Kitchener had been there from day one, and had set the proper wheels into motion. What set him apart from the politicians in London was his belief that the war would be a prolonged struggle, lasting three years at the very least. Germany, an industrial nation of 70 million people, would not be defeated in a few months. Germany would fight to the last man, and Britain had to be ready. Kitchener had planned for this accordingly, and his strategy was twofold. He understood that it would require a commitment unlike anything the Empire had put forth before. Naval power, while crucial, would not be enough. It was Britain's industrial, financial, and manpower resources which would make the difference. To fight Germany on land, Britain would need to start from scratch and raise a citizen army of volunteers. Enlistees for this new army, aka Kitchener's army, came from all corners of the Empire. His request for 100,000 volunteers was met with 1,186,000 showing up in enlistment centers across England. This, coming on the heels of volunteer waves from the Commonwealth. Canada sent 458,000 volunteers. Australia, 332,000. 
New Zealand, 112,000, and South Africa, 70,000. India would add another million and a half by war's end. Kitchener's strategy preached patience. After two years, Britain's new army would be equipped and ready to take the field. By this point, it was assumed the Continental armies would be exhausted, allowing Kitchener's divisions to overwhelm the enemy and secure victory. It was a shrewd strategy, but one which also promised great reward. Not only would Germany be beaten, but Britain's allies so weakened that any imperial ambitions would be contained. This would ensure Britain secured a peace on her terms, guaranteeing she remained the dominant superpower. Now, it's not difficult to see how this could cause problems in a coalition. For one, it drove the French batty that they were withholding manpower from the continent. But this strategy was nothing new. Britain always maintained she had a free hand in diplomatic affairs, where she had the freedom to act without treaty or alliance obligations. We saw this during the July crisis, and was a big part of why the cordiales with France and Russia never became military commitments. Kitchener had stuck to this policy like glue. In a meeting with the French staff in November 1914, he told Joffre, quote, On July the 1st, you will have one million trained soldiers in France. Before that date, you will get none, or practically none, end quote. Relations between the two allies would sour. In the spring of 1915, a popular joke in Paris accused England and Italy of being the only two remaining neutrals. And prior to the meetings at Chantilly, Joffre issued a memo which sarcastically quipped that the Germans would die of boredom before the English arrived in force. Luckily for Joffre, Kitchener had his enemies, and the Frenchman's pleas for manpower found sympathetic ears in London. At the height of the Dardanelles campaign, Britain was racked by the Shell Scandal, which effectively ended Asquith's administration and forced the Prime Minister to adopt a coalition with the opposition. The Shell Scandal, as you'll recall from our episodes on the Dardanelles, had been simmering for some time. It started when the media baron Lord Northcliffe, who owned just about every newspaper in Britain, began to voice his displeasure over Kitchener's management. After the dismal attack at New Chapelle that March, Field Marshal Sir John French, the former commander of the BEF, had told the Times correspondent that a lack of high-explosive shell was causing the army to flounder. When Northcliffe ran the expose front page, things came to a screeching halt. Kitchener, and by extension Asquith, were accused of sending troops into battle ill-prepared. Adding to the toxic cloud which hovered over the Dardanelles, the Shell scandal exposed a deficiency in Britain's war planning. Industry was lagging behind demand. The War Office had placed large orders of high-explosive shell at the end of 1914, but overwhelmed factories were slow to produce. This also affected the state of Kitchener's recruits. Combat exercises were done with wooden rifles, and the men were dressed in incomplete uniforms. An example, 2 million Lee-Enfield rifles were ordered in 1915, and less than 500 had arrived by mid-year. The logistical gaps had cemented that strategy makers had been too optimistic regarding what was achievable on the battlefield. Key figures like Winston Churchill and First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher both fell on their swords over the controversy. For the politicians, inside and outside Asquith's government, Kitchener was the guy to blame. An old soldier in charge of an increasingly technocratic war was no longer sufficient. If she was to fight and win, Britain would need a new regime one where management was overseen by specialists which could transform her into a continental contender. On the 20th of August, 1915, after an attempt to recharge the fighting at Gallipoli when Kersplat at Suvla Bay, Kitchener ceded to French demands. England had to make war as we must and not as we should like to, he famously told Parliament that evening. Kitchener's freehand strategy had collapsed. Although he was kept on board, Kitchener had become disillusioned by the growing influence of politicians. 
he found their presence, quote, repugnant and unnatural, and became a brooding presence in cabinet meetings. But his influence had made him hard to replace. Kitchener would remain a member of the War Council, but his powers were restricted to logistics only, so overseeing supplies, training, recruitment, that sort of thing. Issues of strategy were now the property of the generals in France. The Shell scandal had one more lingering effect. It marked a turning point in Britain's war strategy, signifying that business as usual was obsolete. In its aftermath, Asquith's government inaugurated a series of modernization plans, which overhauled everything from industry, finance, and agriculture. Of these new departments, none would have a greater impact than the Ministry of Munitions, headed by a former Chancellor of the Exchequer and self-declared savior of all things good and decent, David Lloyd George. David Lloyd George, a.k.a. the Welsh Wizard, was born in Manchester on the 17th of January, 1863. In his early political career, Lloyd George had carved a name for himself as a radical social reformer, targeting aristocratic landowners and championing himself a hero of the common people. After establishing an independent practice, Lloyd George married in 1888. His marriage was strong, but Lloyd George was notoriously sloppy in his personal life. He had a thing for married women and frequently participated in risque affairs, which nearly brought his career to ruin on several occasions. Upon joining the liberal ranks in 1890, Lloyd George quickly gained a reputation as a man who got things done, a man of push-and-go, as he coined it. He was perhaps the best orator of his time. With expansive hand gestures and great mane of white hair, his ability to manipulate a crowd was near legendary. After taking in a speech, the economist John Maynard Keynes once described him as a half-human visitor from the enchanted woods of Celtic antiquity. Where Lord George stood a foot taller than everyone else was in the debate square, and those who challenged him found he had the backbone of a Roman, unwilling to compromise and ready to fight tooth and nail for the cause. In 1908, he sparked a constitutional crisis when a tax bill aimed at the aristocracy was rejected by the House of Lords. Lloyd George relished the opportunity, and over the following three years worked systematically to undermine the Lords at every turn. When war was declared, Lloyd George was serving as Asquith's Chancellor of the Exchequer, and managed to avoid a financial crisis by pushing through emergency legislation at the last minute. Special banknotes limited public withdrawals, and as a result, Britain's economy remained afloat during the August chaos. Although he had little understanding of military strategy, Lloyd George knew industrial mobilization was the key to victory. Initially a pacifist who opposed intervention, he transformed himself into a hardline warmonger, who believed the time had come for Britain to roll up her sleeves and wad into the slugging match unfolding on the continent. In a speech delivered in 1916, he impressed upon his audience the importance of full mobilization, saying, quote, I hate war, but once you are in it, you have to go grimly through it. Otherwise, the causes which hang upon a successful issue will perish, end quote. The Shell scandal provided the perfect opportunity for Lloyd George to flex his administrative muscle. He threw all his energy and capacity for hard work into the new task. The Ministry of Munitions had a difficult road ahead. To arm Britain's fighting men, enterprises and trade unions would need to be brought on board. Operating out of a former art dealer's residence, Lloyd George went to work building a ministry that would help transform Britain into a fully-fledged industrial war machine. The Ministry of Munitions got off to an inauspicious start. To give you an idea of what Lloyd George was up against, his first task required securing furniture for his new office. Upon his arrival, Lloyd George found the building unfurnished and vacant. Only a single chair and a pair of tables occupied the rooms. To make matters worse, the Office of Works had arrived later in the day to remove said desk and chair, which they claimed were not property of the new ministry. Cooler heads prevailed, however, 
and Lloyd George was able to convince the movers to have mercy. The chair and desks would stay for the time being. Having successfully navigated his first challenge as minister, Lloyd George went to work finding bodies to fill said furniture. With the help of his two secretaries, one of which was his longtime mistress, the Ministry of Munitions was to be from first to last a businessman organization, which combed the best brains of the community for executive posts. He appointed self-made men with experience from a variety of fields, including railroad managers, industrialists, shippers, bankers, labor leaders, economists, scientists, and publishers. For Lloyd George, merit, and not social standing, was the defining criteria. The third and most delicate task for Lloyd George was getting traders and industry leaders on board the program of nationalized labor. The goal of the new ministry was to oversee and coordinate the production and distribution of arms for the war effort, which meant converting the entire economy onto a war footing. With labor being diverted to a single cause, unions were justifiably concerned they would lead to dilution. So during the first week of June 1915, Lloyd George made a series of speeches in Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, and Bristol, in an effort to bring the labor representatives on board. Needless to say, he put his oratory skills to good use. His speeches were full of patriotic rhetoric, which harkened back to the enthusiasm of August 1914. If Germany was to be defeated, all available manpower, both combatant and non-combatant, had to be mobilized. Lloyd George made his intention clear. If the volunteer at the front cannot go home after an eight-hour day, then the unenlisted laborer should have to make the same sacrifice. Whatever Lloyd George said during this tour seemed to work, and labor leaders were brought on board. There was money to be made after all, and legislation soon followed. In July 1915, the first major piece of legislation passed in-house. The Munitions of War Act gave the ministry a virtual monopoly on national labor. Almost overnight, the landscape of Britain's industry was radically altered. It suspended a worker's right to strike and limited their freedom to move between jobs. Labor disputes were to be submitted for compulsory arbitration. Employers were also subject to strict policies. Factory owners caught fudging the numbers or operating at less than peak capacity were subject to stiff penalties. Excessive profits were also liable for heavy taxes. Legislating was just the first step. Streaming national labor into wartime channels would take time, and getting the machines up to speed would take even longer. Orders needed to be filled, factories needed to be converted and built, tools needed acquiring, and a large labor force needed training. For a nation which never maintained a large field army, it was a risky endeavor. A wilderness of risks with no oasis in sight, as Lloyd George himself described it. By early 1916, munitions factories were beginning to chip away at the backlog, although bottlenecks in quality control and supply and demand remained to be ironed out. At the tail end of 1915, two related issues began to surface. Expanding industry needed manpower, while casualties sustained in France and at the Dardanelles needed replacing. Kitchener and Lloyd George were at loggerheads. Kitchener expressed concern that placing a cap on army recruitment would deter volunteers, but it was no secret that enlistment numbers had dropped. September 1915 saw the lowest recruitment numbers with 71,000, just half the monthly quota of 141,000 needed to keep units at full strength. So, on the 27th of January 1916, Britain turned to conscription for the first time in its history. The possibility of conscription had been lurking beneath the surface for some time. Liberals dare not whisper the word as long as the volunteer numbers remained healthy. One volunteer was worth three conscripts was a common critique of compulsory service. Britain, Canada, and Australia still fielded volunteer armies at the end of 1915, but the numbers were dropping. By mid-April, British casualties had topped 140,000, 
and a greater awareness of the war's nature was taking hold. Conscription was a dramatic but necessary step towards national mobilization. For a country which prided itself on part-time soldiering, it was further proof that the old way was quickly vanishing. France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and to a lesser degree Russia, had maintained some sort of compulsory service prior to the war. Britain was the last domino to fall. For the French, this was welcome news. Icy relations within the Entente were beginning to thaw, and the prospect of more British manpower delighted the beleaguered Joffrin company. But it is important to point out that conscription was not all-encompassing. It was passed through two separate bills. The first, in January, authorized compulsory enlistment for all single men between 18 and 41 years of age. Pretty standard terms. But this did not mean every 18 to 41-year-old was suddenly handed a rifle and kicked into a trench. It only meant your name was added to a manifest, which made you legible for the call. In fact, one of the driving factors behind conscription was so military leaders had an idea of what the manpower pool looked like. There were some exemptions as well. Widowers, teachers, clergymen, and those engaged in specialized war work managed to avoid enlistment over the first six months. It is not surprising that after the first bill was announced, there was a spike in marriage applications and those suddenly wanting to become pastors. Conscription was met with immediate protest from the public. Their government had led them to war on the pretense of quick victory, and throughout 1915 maintained that that victory was nearer rather than further. In April, 200,000 men and women assembled at Trafalgar Square to protest, arguing it violated their rights as citizens. While it remained controversial both in Britain and elsewhere, once in place it would not be repealed. The second conscription bill, which came in May 1916, extended enlistment to married men of military age. Only the medically unfit were given a pass. Conscientious objectors, while excused from frontline service, were expected to take up support roles, such as ambulance drivers and other types of logistical work behind the lines. Throughout the Commonwealth, conscription would arrive at different times. Ireland was exempted through fear of unrest. The Australians rejected it twice in separate referendums, and New Zealand would delay until June. Canada would not pass its own bill until July 1917, while half of South Africa's 146,000 servicemen were drafted. Conscription thus created a vacuum in Britain's labor force, and the influx of able men into the ranks created more problems. A growing army required to fight through miles of machine guns and barbed wire would require a volume of supplies and armaments inconceivable by 1914 standards. It was one thing to draft the paperwork, but another thing altogether to put it into motion. The movement towards a mobilized home front required great disruption to the everyday lives of civilians. Personal liberties, big and small, had to be sacrificed in the name of national interests. The twin Conscription Bills and Munitions Act were thus the beginning of a long, drawn-out process which could take months before fruits were shown. To fill the growing vacancies in labor, Lloyd George turned to the most readily source available, women. Now, contrary to popular belief, a woman in paid employment was not an anomaly in Britain. They made up a substantial part of the pre-war labor force, most notably in textile manufacturing and agriculture. However, the great enlistment rush of August 1914 had left employers shortchanged. Government efforts to recruit women began on March 16, 1915. A national register listing those barred from military service, so women, children, and the elderly, was created. And by June, 79,000 women across England had enrolled for war work. Finding placements, on the other hand, had proven difficult. Just 1,800 found paid employment, which generally meant a wife filling an occupation vacated by her husband. Lloyd George had at first tried to dodge the issue. He fully appreciated that women could be of immeasurable help, but he was reluctant to make the change. 
labor representatives had dug in their heels, and legislation was slow. In their opinion, a predominantly female workforce would undermine the labor value. Unions argued exploitation, and employers feared a decline in quality. In an attempt to appease, Lloyd George offered to begin demobilizing skilled workmen, but found this was immediately blocked by the war office. Kitchener, for one, was outraged, and Lloyd George remised. Out of 250,000 metal workers who joined the army, only 5,000 were brought out of uniform. The breakthrough moment arrived on July the 18th. Thousands of Londoners gathered for the women's war pageant, marching through the rain and mud to present their case to Lloyd George personally. Led by Emmeline Pankhurst of the former militants, now moderate, Women's Social and Political Union, the purpose of the march was to show that women were eager to do their part and were no longer happy being bystanders. If their sons, husbands, and brothers were expected to fight, they too were prepared to make sacrifices. The women of Britain were demanding a right to serve, and Lloyd George was wise to give it to them. Whatever motivated these women, whether it was patriotism, economic necessity, or a bit of both, was beside the point. By summer's end, the number of employed women steadily increased. The feminine heroic munitions worker, dressed in workmen's clothes while churning out the weapons that would ensure victory, became a common sight in Britain, and is perhaps the most powerful indicator of wartime change. Although all the major participants turned to female labor at some point or another, it was in Britain where the phenomenon truly took off. By August 1916, some 1.1 million women had taken up work in wartime factories, both in government and private sectors. While factory work provided the easiest access to employment, it was by no means the only one. By late 1915, women were appearing in all sorts of occupations previously restricted. Banks and government offices employed women as typists and clerks. Municipalities recruited thousands as tram operators, police officers, teachers, and delivery drivers. Thousands more became business owners, managers, shipbuilders, inspectors, welders, and social workers. The work was as variant as you can imagine. But without a doubt, the munitions industry provided the bulk of the employment, and at least a third of all working women took jobs constructing the sinews of war. Pay was higher than the other occupations, and it gave the worker a degree of freedom and the chance to actually support their loved ones at the front. It was the factories which produced the helmets, the guns, and supplies needed on the battlefield, and it was women who provided the hands. Life inside a munitions factory was full of hardship. These buildings were loud, chaotic, and generally unpleasant to be around. You had a choice of two shifts, which depended largely on your marital status. Single women tended to work during the day, while married women or those with young children generally took night shifts. Now at first glance, this may seem a little bit backward. A single or widowed mother should have the opportunity to spend the evening at home, right? Well, that wasn't often the case. Traditional gender roles remained entrenched in everyday society. Women were expected to do their part, but not at the expense of their domestic duties. Mothers were expected to spend the day at home and then head off to the factory in the evening. This was a way of maintaining the status quo of the day, but also to deter any crazy thoughts that women could have commitments beyond home and husband. After changing into work attire, you punched in and began your shift. If you worked the early change, your day typically began at 5am. To fuel the appetite of the Western Front, munitions factories ran 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The lathes, hoists, and furnaces clanked and clobbered round the clock. Work weeks were anywhere from 60 to 80 hours, with one day of rest which usually fell every second Sunday. Shifts were divided between 9 and 12 hours, with two breaks of an hour for dinner and a half hour for a coffee and tea. So it goes without saying, it was exhausting work. Inside the factories was organized chaos. The sounds of machines and workers running at full speed did not make life easy for the laborer. Work was work, and you had to be ready. 
Sanitation was poor, and in some cases workers were exposed to the weather in drafty or partly finished buildings. Temperatures fluctuated from stifling humidity to extreme cold. Health threats were around every corner. The handling of poisonous substances like TNT produced eczema and jaundice. Those who developed the latter were known as canary girls because of the yellowish complexion of their skin. Workers often complained of chest and back pain, and breathing troubles brought on by poor ventilation. In the early days of nationalized labor, safety measures took time to catch up. Glassmakers moved huge paints without safety gloves, and shelf fillers had to contend with toxic fumes with little more than a rag over their nose and mouth. Proper breathing masks would not be widely available for some months. With safeguards lacking behind the rate of production, workplace accidents, some even resulting in death, were not uncommon. By July 1917, 49 deaths were linked to the mishandling of deadly substances, namely asbestos. Physical injuries were also common. There are no reliable records which tell us how many workers were maimed or disabled due to workplace accidents, but recent scholarship has put the number upwards of 200. The most infamous example was an explosion at a shelf-filling plant in Chilwell in July 1918. Eight tons of TNT exploded, which killed 134 workers and wounded an additional 250. Body parts landed in nearby neighborhoods, and the blast rattled windows 50 kilometers away. What caused the Chilwell explosion is still in debate. Most likely it was a case of human error, but others have blamed German or Irish sabotage as likely culprits. Since the authorities tried to suppress news of the explosion, speculation over the whodunits naturally increased. Incidents of this magnitude were extremely rare, but a fast-paced atmosphere with an inexperienced labor force made serious injury almost unavoidable. The question of pay was another hot potato. Regardless of class, female workers made less than their male counterparts, although the standard wage was higher than what was offered in peacetime. Male-dominated unions were concerned that low wages would devalue their labor and undermine their power. At the same time, however, supporting equal pay was too radical for many, since they felt male workers were better suited for demanding munitions work. A compromise of sorts was struck. Male and female employees were paid the same for piecework, but there remained a gap in hourly wages. For their part, women were not defenseless against unfair legislation, and they actively participated in the public debate. They had taken the mantle, the arms which armed the nation, and set up community groups which lobbied the government. The National Federation of Women Workers was just one organization which succeeded in standardizing pay in Birmingham, Liverpool, and London. Britain's expanding armaments industry also saw a flurry of migration throughout the British Isles. English factories typically offered better wages than those in Ireland, Scotland, or Wales. As a result, thousands of Irish and Scottish women migrated to England for better opportunities. After the Irish uprising in April 1916, which we'll talk about a few episodes from now, cultural tensions would boil over. Brawls and forcible ejections disrupted production in many instances. At a shelf-filling plant in Hereford, Irish workers broke out into patriotic song, denouncing the union and occupation of Ireland. Fearing strike, the local garrison was called in, and the workers found themselves shipped back to Dublin that evening. Of course, there will always be those who oppose change at any level and what was happening in Britain was no exception. As men were called to colors and women filled new roles, public anxiety over the future of family and household emerged. In Britain, the war had been sold as a contest against German barbarism. Kultur, spelt K-U-L-T-U-R, which depicted the German as an uncivilized monster, eager to rape, pillage, and murder anyone who got in his way. Civilian atrocities in Belgium and the unrestricted submarine campaign gave further evidence of German backwardness. Dehumanizing the enemy is the oldest trick in the book, and is essential to any propaganda war. 
The British were the masters of this art. Recruitment posters frequently depicted the Germans as brutish apes with snarling teeth, ready to consume the Anglo-Saxon way of life. At the center of the recruitment effort was the woman, a soldier's wife, daughter, girlfriend, or sister back home. The women in propaganda posters were usually depicted as defenseless victims, often half-clothed, as the evil Huns stood poised to strike. Such images were designed to work on two levels, to cater to the masculine sensibilities of men and the implicit reinforcement of traditional gender roles. While the First World War provided women with opportunities they would not have had otherwise, these social changes were eyed with uncertainty. The great fear was that women would run amok, drinking, smoking, and engaging in inappropriate sexual behavior while their brave husbands suffered in the trenches. If the enemy was an inhumane brute, then Britain's women were expected to be the embodiment of perfect traditional morality. When victory was achieved, the soldiers could return to familiar normalcy without disruption. The notion that things would revert back to their original state helped produce the double standard that is alive and well today. Images of alluring women were used to get men into uniform, yet any quote-unquote immoral behavior from a woman was strongly frowned upon, particularly against the munitionettes, who after working together in large numbers, developed close-knit communities. Since many were young and single, new leisures and recreations were opening up. Women's organized sports leagues popped up across the country, which drew large crowds of curious onlookers. These were seen as healthy activities, since it was positive for general moral well-being. What drew the heaviest criticism was the issue of sobriety and the consumption of alcohol. David Lloyd George was especially concerned about this. Alcohol, he felt, would lead to moral collapse. Sales would need to be closely monitored and, if need be, banned altogether. Forgetting that he enjoyed the comfort of uh, more adventurous women, Lloyd George had pushed for a program of national sobriety. This had found some traction in-house, culminating with King George V, taking a national pledge to swear off the drink, and urged working men and women to do the same. Britain was not the first participant to face an alcohol problem during wartime. In Russia, Tsar Nicholas ordered his army officers to stay away from vodka by royal decree, but given the Russian performance so far, I think it's fair to say this oath was taken for appearances only. Lloyd George never got total prohibition. Instead, heavy taxes were levied on sales, lighter beers were introduced, and serving times were cut to just five and a half hours per day. Consumption was soon in rapid decline, from 89 million gallons in 1914 to 37 by war's end. To be clear, this wasn't because women were frequenting the bars more than men. There is no evidence which suggests anything of the sort took place. Their consumption was more visible, however. A lot more women had incomes, and the sight of two or three ladies getting a drink after a shift was enough to cause a stir that women were forgetting themselves or succumbing to the vices of men. Such claims were alarmist, of course, but they continued to operate in the background nonetheless. Newspapers were peppered with columns questioning the future of, quote, our women. One of the more potent critiques came from Scotland, where the editor of a Glasgow newspaper criticized the increased foul mouth and rude behavior of what he called pampered munitions workers. Our young munitioners are what Lady Macbeth prayed to be unsexed from the crown of their bonneted heads to the toe of their masculine overalls, the editor wrote. Such claims found popular support, but also had their fair share of criticisms. Cecil Walden, the manager of the Glasgow projectile plant, responded that female workers had taken their places in the war with a solid determination to provide the means to carry on the war in the absence of skilled and unskilled men. Women from all class found themselves front and center in a game of social tugwar. On the one end, 
praised for their patriotism and criticized on the other for abandoning gender morals. For the first year of the war, all the participants were concerned about a rise in war babies, which were the offspring of unmarried women to men in the military. War babies were suspected to exist in large numbers, and the governments of France, Germany, and Britain were so concerned over moral health that birth rates were closely monitored. At the end of the day, the number of babies outside wedlock never reached critical mass. In Britain, there was a slight increase in 1917, when 8% of all newborns came from unmarried couples. This was double the national average in 1914-16, but the strains of war and eventual food crisis should be seen as equal contributors to the root cause. Even after the arrival of Commonwealth troops, the notion that single women were throwing themselves at any man in uniform, in affliction coined khaki fever, was more for shock and awe than anything else. Strict fraternization rules greeted the troops as they disembarked. Alcohol was to be consumed on base only, and troops were expected to report back by midnight to ensure no overnight liaisons took place. As is to be expected, this never stopped the young and reckless from breaking the rules. Canadian and Australian troops soon gained reputations for public rowdiness, which drew the ire of their superior officers. Concern over public safety grew. French and English civilians reported drunk soldiers urinating and vomiting in the streets. Incidences of theft and vandalism came across the desks of many SCOs. However, the number of soldiers participating in these acts was incredibly small. The behavior of five men, from a company of 200, of a regiment of 2,000, is hardly indicative of overall behavior. Morale was closely monitored, and disorder of any type was taken as a sign. Armies understood the importance of balancing work and recreation, especially as more working-class civilians entered the ranks. One of the more effective ways of monitoring morale was through medical inspections. Evidence of lice, frostbite, and overall poor hygiene were easy and non-intrusive ways to discover the mood of the men. The most feared was the spread of venereal disease, gonorrhea, syphilis, and canker being the most common. Venereal infection has a long and colored past within the pages of military history, and the First World War was no exception. Before arriving in France, Commonwealth and Imperial troops would stop over in England for training and resupply, and it was during these layovers when VD rates spiked. Officers were concerned that the boredom of base life would inevitably lead to sexual liaisons with the young local ladies. It is never a pleasant thing to talk about, but tackling wartime prostitution became a major project. For the participants, this centered on two major prongs, maintaining the health of the fighting forces and protecting the sexual purity of young women. Regulated brothels, known as tolerated houses, registered their workers and gave regular checkups. Men of French and British armies were given courses on the dangers of venereal disease. Recruits of Kitchener's army had messages printed on their pay envelopes advising them to avoid the temptations of wine and women. For governments, the easiest way to deter men from sexual encounters was by targeting their pay. Men admitted to hospital on account of VD could have their pay suspended to help cover the cost of treatment. This policy, known as hospital stoppage, was not overly effective. Since medical efforts were streamlined to help the physically wounded, VD hospitals lagged behind in staff and supplies, and the quality of patient care declined. Men who stayed in these hospitals often ended up more sick than they were when they arrived. Despite efforts to curb the hidden scourge, lonely men and women were bound to hook up eventually. During the first four months in England, Canadian forces reported 1,250 cases of venereal infection. By the end of the war, 15% of overseas enlisted men had contracted some form of infection or another, a total of 416,891 confirmed cases, 
and that number reflects only servicemen and not civilians. To put that into perspective, that's enough to fill two additional BEF armies and a single division. The numbers do not lie. The difference was how authorities treated VD. Governments regarded it as a moral and not a medical issue. If men were contracting these diseases, it was because they were bored or disillusioned. Appealing to religious sensitivities and counseling chastity would only go so far. Efforts to treat VD as a medical issue as it should have been were slow getting off the ground. One of the strongest advocates was a New Zealand woman by the name of Eddie Rout, who worked as a volunteer nurse in Egypt. During her time in Egypt, Rout became alarmed at the rate of VD in servicemen and began pushing for better solutions. Her proposal was a simple one. Maintain a list of clean brothels, or failing that, issue prophylactic kits. Rout's suggestion sparked outrage in her native New Zealand, mainly because it suggested that men, and not women, were responsible for VD rates. It would take until late 1917, two years after Rout's suggestion, that prophylactic kits were made mandatory in the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. But even then, Rout received no credit for her work, despite the fact the issue kit was the same as the one she designed herself. The remarkable case of Eddie Rout was indicative of a larger dilemma. The debate over public health was a serious one, and the chosen battleground was women's bodies. It was determined that servicemen would seek sex wherever it was available, and it was the women's responsibility to ensure they were clear of infection. Agitated reformers flailed their arms, bellowing it was the idle and morally lax women who were the cause of the epidemic. By that definition, any woman not registered to a brothel was technically to blame. This was, of course, a ludicrous proposition, but it remained a powerful one for much of the war. In 1916, the Bishop of London called for a Cleansing London campaign in an effort to, and I quote, purge the heart of the empire before the boys come back, end quote. After he became prime minister, Lloyd George would pass a series of regulations aimed at safeguarding the health of His Majesty's army. These amendments, which were added to the Defense of the Realm Act, read like something from some theocratic despot. The notorious Regulation 40D, which came into law in March 1918, gave the authorities the right to arrest women suspected of venereal infection. After being taken into custody, the suspect would be put under a series of medical examinations. If she was found guilty, her punishment came in either hefty fines or imprisonment. Not only did this overstep the civil rights Britain was fighting to defend, but it never considered the possibility that transmission could have originated with an infected soldier. By the time the armistice was signed, 203 arrests were made on these grounds, with about half resulting in actual convictions. For the women of Great Britain, the war produced a contradictory experience. On the one hand, it opened doors and allowed them to enter fields which were restricted otherwise. Whether it was hauling shell casings or punching buttons as an office telegrapher, the mobilization of women had a profound effect on the war. Women were asked and volunteered to make sacrifices. But what would their reward be? Well, I can tell you right now that the Great War was not the step towards emancipation it is commonly cracked out to be. When the war ended, women were expected to just put away their tools and return to their traditional roles. By 1921, working-class women accounted for just 2% of the labor force, which was actually lower than pre-war volumes. So why this sudden change? The political climate in post-war Europe greatly varied. Lower and working-class women were forced back to their familial roles with little in return. Tens of thousands of munitions workers were laid off with less than a week's notice. War material was no longer needed. Some of the overstock was purchased or sold to other governments, 
but by and large, the machines ground to a halt and the laborers found themselves out of work. Women who were terminated discovered that finding new employment was next to impossible. The years spent in the factories had given them a glimpse of better wages and meaningful work, and many were not ready to convert back to their pre-war life. The trouble was that employers were unwilling to hire them, less risk taking a job from a veteran on his way back home. One area which offered plenty of opportunities was in domestic service. However, the wages in that sector were substantially lower than what was offered in the factories. In many cases, widows or those from poor households had no choice, and a refusal to work in the domestic sphere meant the end of pensions and war allowances. Since service work often required its employees to work in-house, this meant finding new accommodations for their children. If they were lucky, they could drop the kids off at a family or friend's house. But if not, future decisions were much less clear. Widows who lost their husbands in the war found themselves in this predicament as soon as the armistice came into effect. Attempts to appeal the government over these issues fell flat, and their response was little more than, thanks for your service, go away now please. Besides the blatant unjustness of it all, the war created a new reality which governments were slow to catch up to. The defeat of Germany had cost Britain 947,000 men killed, on top of an additional 2 million wounded. Finding replacements for this loss in manpower was not going to be easy. Thousands of families were now without a breadwinner. Men with missing limbs or respiratory issues were not widely employable, so economic necessity drove women to seek employment, but the jobs which offered meaningful wages were back off limits. The conversion back to pre-war standard was impossible for thousands of women, because, simply put, there was nothing to turn back to. Political franchise was slow to come as well. Common myth would have us believe that the Great War allowed women to breach the glass ceiling and become enfranchised citizens on equal footing as men. The truth is a lot more complicated, and depends on the country you're talking about. Russia was the only nation to grant universal suffrage during wartime, but this only came after the collapse of Tsardom prior to the Bolshevik takeover, which made it a mute point anyway. In Britain, the war had interrupted the suffragist movement which had been gaining momentum since the 1870s and 80s. Feminist leaders decided to suspend their campaigns in order to demonstrate their patriotic commitment. Emmeline Pankhurst, one of the leading and more controversial suffragettes who headed the Women's Social and Political Union, likewise abandoned their militant approach and focused their energy against the Germans through organizing public awareness campaigns and fundraisers. What often gets overlooked in the suffragist histories is that Britain did not have universal voting rights until 1918. The vast majority of men and women did not have the vote before, during, or after the war. A volunteer cut down at the Battle of Luz, or Gasta Ypres, did so without political representation of any kind. Leaders were chosen from a small circle of elites, and their democratic system has been described as government of the people, for the people, by the best of people. From a 1914 population of 46 million, less than one-eighth had guaranteed franchise. The census among historians is that while the franchise would have arrived sooner rather than later, the First World War led to its acceleration. Discussions over male and female suffrage began to heat up again in 1916, no doubt because national mobilization had to be counterbalanced with the promise of rewards. Horrific losses on the Somme battlefields had pushed lawmakers to re-examine the electorate. Seeing how things were unfolding in 1917 Russia, Britain's courts were scared to death. They knew they were not immune to the spread of Bolshevism, and were eager to avoid a climate where it could grow. So, in February 1918, a big step towards adult suffrage was taken. The Representation of the People Act expanded the electorate considerably. All men over 21 years of age were given the vote, 
but restrictions for women remained in place. Only those 30 years of age or older were enfranchised, but even then, property restrictions were imposed. The bones of this legislation reflected a great post-war anxiety. By 1918, women were the electorate majority, and a large pool of female voters was way too far to left field for many. Curiously, the age restriction on female votes included a large number of women who took up work in the factories. So there's another reason why things were not so rosy coming up the other side. Outside of Britain, the picture remained much the same. Germany granted full suffrage only because post-war chaos made it impossible. Small measures of women's suffrage were granted in newly independent nations of Austria, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Hungary, Poland, and Latvia. The big omission from this list is France, which did not grant equal rights until 1944. So to wrap things up for this week, 1916 was to be a year like no other. Britain was growing in strength, while French and German armies remained snarled in the Verdun Mincer. Austria-Hungary, likewise, cast her lot by launching a poorly conceived offensive in Trentino. Brutal fighting along the Alpine frontier raced for weeks, until Italian defense stiffened. The Central Powers had stuck both hands in the mud. Next week, we're going to finally bring the Russians back into the mix. They too had a role to play in the coming War of Attrition. Not only would they cripple the Habsburg army, but would draw the Central Powers into a tightening noose. Encirclement from three sides was drawing near. That's it for this week. Check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. There are a number of ways to support the show. The first is by making a donation through our website. This will help cover the cost of acquiring sources and ensure the show delivers the most accurate and up-to-date research available. Or, you can look us up on iTunes and leave a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 42 of The Great War Podcast, and we'll see you again shortly.